a list to check. It's going to take work to press into figuring out what is actually the list in your life that you need to create. And for those of us who don't necessarily like, like lists, it's actually gonna take some work to actually engage this on a significant level that asks the same question too. Maybe you don't have to create a, a list at the end of the day, but, but to, to fashion a response that's incredibly individualized and personalized through this time together, okay? Maybe you're new. Maybe you're new uh, here to Sedaris, and you're like, great. I knew it. I knew they were going to talk about money. Churches are always talking about money. Uh, maybe this is even one of the reasons why you decided to stop going to church, because uh, churches are always talking about money. Maybe they're always talking about getting your money, you know? Um, but uh, I, I, this is the first time in the three years that we've been in existence that we've ever talked about money from up here. This is the first time in, in the three years that we've ever done this. And what's great if you're new is you're actually not on the hook to respond in, in any way to this. And, and, and this is what's really great about your opportunity that you're in. When Jesus talks about money, it becomes very clear what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When he talks about money, it becomes radically clear of, oh, that's what the life of discipleship is all about. And so if you're new and maybe even not a Christian, this is a great opportunity for you. What we're gonna do in talking about um, generosity and finances tonight is we're gonna pop the hood and see what's actually making this thing called Christianity run. We're, we're, we're really gonna see the gospel tonight. We can't help talking about the gospel when we talk about generosity, all right? Okay, so it's, it's a time of year. Uh, that that's one of the reasons why we're talking about generosity. Um, and then... Uh, Another reason why we're talking about it is that it's just um, the season of where we are as a young church plant. It's just the financial season of where we are, the occasion, I guess you could say, of where we are as a church plant. And we have this slide that we're showing every week and we're saying a few things about. Okay? All right, so this is a slide with two big triangles. Okay? And the first big triangle I want you to look at is that blue one. That blue one represents our outside donors. There are other are 93 donors actually represented in that little, or that big triangle there, that have given $397,000 over the course of the last three years. $397,000 over the course of three years in order to see a gospel-centered mission reach the city of Seattle. These are our, our, our backers, our supporters. It's great, we're so grateful for them. Um, and here's the kicker, uh, none of them live in the city of Seattle. None of them live here. Uh, you don't know any of them. None of them benefit by our community directly at all, but they've all responded uh, to re really God's vision of a church here in Seattle, to start a church here in Seattle that is faithful to the gospel of Jesus and eager to get it out into the city. So that's our external donors, our outside support. That's the blue triangle. And, and what Dave and I are asking everybody to do is give a huge, uh, or not a huge, doesn't have to be huge, but an out loud prayer of thankfulness at your Thanksgiving table this year. Thank you, God, for our 93 donors that have given so much money in order to see your mission come here to Sedaris. So that's what we're asking everybody to do, okay? Um, and then the second thing I want you to see about this, uh, these triangles is that they're triangles. Really simple, right? They're, they're triangles. And, and, and we created this back in 2013, and we always envisioned a financial model where our outside support went down as our, as, and as we grew as a church, our internal giving would 
grow. So those are meant to, to be inversely related. Is that the term? Inversely related. Um, and, and right there in 2017, you'll see that we were hoping to support our budget up to 70%. That's what those numbers mean. Uh, going down the middle there, that, that 70% of our budget we were hoping to support from uh, gifts from inside of our church. And as we project towards the end of the year, we're at about 68%, which is great as a church, and it's hard because that's a percent, but in, in dollar amounts, that translates to $165,000 that people inside this church have given and, and that's huge. And, and so what, one of the things that we want to do in talking about this uh, is say, hey, we're, we're, we're really on track with hitting our goals, and that's largely because of you guys. And we're really thankful to everybody who's given to Sedaris over the course of, of this last year. That's just 2017. And so we're, we're so thankful for you guys and thankful for how you guys have, have given faithfully, gave, uh, thankful that you guys are engaging this uh, discussion with us. Um, I think Dave said last week, we're, we're thankful that you're not getting up right now and walking out the, out the room. Uh, we were talking about money here at church. We're really thankful for you guys, and we're excited for what's next. Um, all the way down here on the right side of, of our chart is uh, a 100%. <laughs> and that's the, the, the hope that next year in 2018 that we will transition over to a fully supported church from our internal giving and the, from, from the people that'll call Sidera, that do call Sedaris home. That's where we're hoping to get. So, I mean, for those of you who are good at math, that's a 32% increase <laughs> coming up here. And, and um, that translates uh, to dollars in terms of $7,500 a month. $7,500 a month. And um, that, that we're hoping to increase our giving in the new year. And, and some of you may kind of be scared by that number. That, that, that number may be a big number. You, you may be looking around the room and being like, hey, there's a lot of young people in this church um, translation, not a lot of us make a lot of money, <laughs> and we're hoping to be able to, to bring in that much more every month, um, but we have a plan, all right, and, there, and there's three ways that we're going to accomplish this, all right, there's three ways that we're going to accomplish this. Um, the first one is we've been saving, we've been saving. Um, Dave, is, he's made a lot of, he's the founding pastor here, Pastor Dave, he's made a lot of shrewd deals, over the last three days. He's a shrewd, shrewd man, that Dave. And we can talk about him like that because he's not here tonight. He's in California vacationing. But he's, he's a shrewd man, and he's worked some shrewd deals that have enabled us to save, save some money over the past three years. Um, so he's a shrewd deal maker, um, but then he's just shrewd all the time. I think last week he pointed, I think he used the word stingy even. And um, he, he tries to save a dollar here, five dollars there, 10 dollars there. Right, Sarah, you're on staff. I've been on staff at churches for five years. I've never seen a more tightly run ship than Sedaris Church. Uh, always trying to save a dollar here, a dollar there. But over the course of three years, a dollar here and a dollar there, it adds up. And so we're actually going into this season where our, our outside support is, is uh, uh, ramping off um, with a, on a cushion of sorts into this time. And so what I'm, communicating, what I'm trying to communicate in this is that this isn't a life or death thing for us. We're not coming to you guys saying, hey, we gotta raise $7,500 a month or we're gonna have to shut the doors. We're, we're not close to that and um, 
And so, yeah, I just want you to know that Sedaris is still a very financially secure institution in general. And as we go into the next year, we'll be uh, leaning on our savings to, uh, to really make up for the shortfall that we may not be able to make as our, a community ourselves. All right? Um, the, the second thing that we're going to do is we are going to um, grow the maturity and generosity of our body. Um, and I, I just came here over the course of the, uh, in like January 1st, over the summer. And one thing that I love about Sedaris is everybody's always talking about the gospel. Everybody's always talking about, yeah, some of you are like, oh man, you just came here in, J- in July and you're having to ask people for money? Bummer, that's a rough place. No, Anyways. no. Um, people here are always talking about the gospel. And I love that. Like our group leaders, they have the freedom to teach on whatever they want to teach on, right? And um, they often pick gospel-based topics to teach through uh, for their groups and stuff. And that's really encouraging to me. I, I see that and I see life. Um, but one of the things that, that Dave has said over the years, he's like, you know what? I haven't really um, tied finances to the gospel very well. I haven't really tied our possessions to the gospel really well. And so this series is, is one of the ways that we're going to begin to do that for you guys. Because I think that when we truly just see how um, the generosity of Christ is tied to our generosity, that we will uh, we'll really want to respond as well. Okay, so, so that's the second way we're going to do it. And, and then the third way that we're going to do it is, is by um, bringing more people into the church, growing as a church itself. Um, and so, and this is going to be uh, through people that are naturally attracted, that see our, our signs out there. We were just talking about how effective our signs are. Um, they're really effective. Maybe you guys didn't know this, but like on the connect cards it said, how, did you, how do you find Sedaris? Like one out of like every 10 or 20 people says street signs. It's pretty fun. Anybody here, raise your hand if you found stairs from the street signs. One, two, all right, well, maybe my math's wrong, maybe my math's wrong. (laughs) Anyways, um, but then it's also gonna include your friends uh, that you're gonna bring who aren't Christian and them becoming Christians, and perhaps you bring friends that are Christians but haven't ever gotten plugged into a church before, okay, that that maybe need to be a part of their their first church in their adult life, you know, Um, so. So that, th- those are the three ways that we're going to do it, all right? And um, this is something that we are going to do. This is like a, a, a goal that Dave and I look at that's very, very achievable, that we are going to do it, and we're really excited to see how God's going to move all of us to generosity um, over the course of the next year to get us to the point where we can be fully supported from the people who call Sedera's home. And so I just want to thank you guys for engaging this with us. Um, thank you for ha- uh, having the really just the, the humility to sit under the word of God and, and thank you for being willing uh, to engage this conversation as we go forward. Um, so yeah, all right. So yeah, that, that's everything. Um, all of our cards are on the table. Uh, that's what we do here at Sedaris. We don't try to hold any, any of our secret motivations back and then spring them on you. Um, everything's out and on the table for us, all right? So now we can talk about the gospel. All right, let's do that. Let's do that. So open, if you brought your Bibles, bring them out. Turn over to Mark chapter 12. Um, if you didn't bring your Bibles, uh, we have some underneath the seat in front of you. Um, Leslie, there's one underneath that far seat if you're looking. I saw you looking. But, um, and go ahead and turn over to Mark chapter 12. Um, that's where we're going to be today. And I need to catch you guys up to speed with where we're at in Mark chapter 12 because we left off in Mark chapter 3, and nine chapters have happened, and nine chapters is a lot of ground. Back in Mark chapter 3, um, Jesus was uh, just kind of a, 
a, a ragamuffin that had just been baptized, uh, been tempted in the desert, and just called 12 disciples to himself, and they had just started going town to town preaching about this gospel, okay? Mark chapter 12, fast forward three years, we're at the end of Jesus's life now. We're at the very end of Jesus's life. Jesus um, had gone town to town to town for three years. Now we're at the end of his life, and he's gone to Jerusalem. He's gone to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, the festival of Passover. This was a week-long festival in Jerusalem where they celebrated how God had delivered them out of Egypt and rescued them from slavery. And Jesus is going there, and he made it very clear that his intention is to fulfill the sacrifice of the Passover lamb here he, he, he was gonna, he was planning on dying here in Jerusalem, okay? But he comes into Jerusalem and they welcome him as a king. His, the first day he goes there, he's on a donkey and, and all the people come in and, and they, they surround him as he's coming in and, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which was a, a, a Jewish idiom for um, salvation is here. Salvation has arrived. The crowds uh, see him, and in their minds, they, he, that he's attracted so much popularity, talking about this kingdom of God in the countryside for three years, and they think that he's come to Jerusalem to finally inaugurate it in full, salvation. And they, they, they grab palm branches, and they put them down in front of his donkey as his donkey is going, uh, as his donkey's walking into Jerusalem. And the subtext here is the person on this donkey is so kingly, that not even his animal should have to dirty its hooves on the ground. And so, I mean, and so they take these palm branches and they lay them down. They're literally bowing before Jesus as a king as he enters into Jerusalem, okay? And Jesus' week looked like this. Um, he was actually staying in a suburb of Jerusalem. Uh, you, do you guys know what a suburb is? Yeah, yeah. He's staying in a suburb called Bethany, which is about a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem. Every morning, Jesus would wake up Groggy Jesus would walk one and a half miles to Jerusalem, and then he would haunt the temple. He loved being in the temple, and he debated the religious leaders of the day, and he taught about the gospel. He did that until he got tired. Then he had a nice big uh, festival dinner and celebration, and then he walked back home, went to sleep, woke up, did it again. This is the last week of Jesus' life. And at one point, he was teaching at the temple, and he sat down to take a break, which is weird because Jesus in the book of Mark, Mark's always shown how active Jesus is. But then we see that Jesus isn't taking a break at all. He sits down, and he observes something. And it's here in Mark chapter 12, in verse 41. Let's read it together. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the temple, or sorry, and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in, in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on all that she had to live on. So what's happening here is people would come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover from all over the country, and what they would do over the course of the previous year is they would save up a little bit each day or each month or each week. They'd save it all up so that they could make a special temple gift 
as they celebrated Passover every year. And so you, people would come in and, and contribute extravagant sums of money at this offering box, but right alongside we have a widow who puts two, the, the, the Greek here is leptons, it was, it was a coinage, two leptons, they're, they're also called mites, two leptons into this box. And Jesus sees it and he's like, oh, teaching moment, gathers his disciples together. And I like to imagine the disciples' response to Jesus when Jesus does this teaching moment. He says, this widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. I kind of picture them as being puzzled, like, okay. And then, and then, he, then Jesus follows it up. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. And so I kind of picture them going from going from puzzled to, I guess I can accept that, Jesus. Like, that's a really nice thing to say. What a great consolation and, and validation of, of this widow's action, you know? Great, Jesus, awesome. Uh, another mystical Jesus saying that we have to add to our huge list that we've created over the last three years, right? And then I picture Jesus going back into the temple to, to teach and to preach and to get into arguments. And them kind of looking at each other and being like, yeah, but those guys gave more, right? <laughs> like, those guys gave more, right? And I think this is actually all of our reaction to this story. At first, we're a little puzzled, and then Jesus uh, gives us this, this explanation, and then we're kind of, all of us have hearts, right? And so we, we want to say, okay, yeah, this is, uh, we should be compassionate and, and kind of console this widow and, and validate the gift that she's brought, but at the end of the day, we don't actually think that a small gift is a large gift, do we? I mean, after all, doesn't that violate, like, math in general? <laughs> don't you guys like math? Any engineers? I mean, everybody here works for Boeing or... Don't we love math? We don't actually think that this small gift is a large gift, do we? Do we? <clears throat> and, and I think that we, we may even go one step further. We even go one step further down this line of thought. We may take a step back and, and we may be like, someone should tell this widow that the temple doesn't really need her gift. Like, look at all these other gifts that are coming in that are much, much larger. Like, when we take a step back and put this all into perspective, the temple doesn't really need your gift. Doesn't really need it. <clears throat> but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think he's just trying to say, giving us a nice, compassionate, consolation assessment of this widow's sacrifice here. I think he's asking us to put his disciples and us by extension to put on new lenses to view giving. And those are the lenses of personal sacrifice. Those are the lenses of personal sacrifice. And these lenses of personal sacrifice go a little bit further than judging the size of the gift is what I, I'm going to argue tonight. They go further than, than judging the size of the gift. They actually conclude that that small gift can do more in the kingdom of God than the large gift. That that small gift has more kingdom potential tied to it. Now that's a crazy thing to say because this isn't how money naturally works for us, right? I mean, how does money naturally work? The more money you have, the more food you can buy. The more money you have, the more Seattle games you can go to, and if you're gonna, or Seattle Seahawks games you can go to, and if you want to drink beer there, you have to have a lot of money. 
right? Right, this is how money naturally works. But Jesus is saying, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. The economics of my kingdom are different. Sizes of gifts and the potential tied to them are tied to personal sacrifice. Tied to personal sacrifice and they can accomplish more for the kingdom. You can even say it like this. The currency of the kingdom is personal sacrifice, not dollars and cents. The currency of the kingdom Sacrifice, not dollars and cents. After all, what are we doing right now? We're talking about a widow, a poor widow, who everything she had consisted of two, two coins. They were the smallest coins of the day. We're talking about how a widow gave those coins to God 2,000 years later. And this story has been told millions and millions and millions of times over the past 2,000 years in, in like almost every single language. And each time it's told, God gets more and more and more glory. We, we see a person who's willing to sacrifice for God and we rejoice. We say, yeah, God is that great to give up everything for him. So this small gift has yielded a huge amount of potential a huge amount of potential. This normalizes giving as well. This normalizes giving across all social classes. How are the gifts of, of poorer people measured? Sacrificial giving, personal sacrifice. How are, are the gifts of, of richer people measured? Personal sacrifice. They're all measured the same way. They're all measured the same way. And this is no more clear. I mean, maybe you, you buy my story a little bit that the, the, the widow's two cents has yielded great kingdom potential. But this is actually no more clear than when we look at the life of Christ. When we look at the life of Christ, this is what we see. Christ was fully God and he was fully man. And the part of him that was fully man was fully poor. He was fully poor. He, he described himself like this. The son of man has no place to rest his head. And his followers, his disciples, were the same way for the past three years. They had wandered the Judean countryside, the, the Israeli countryside, from town to town to town, hoping that other people would provide them places to lay their head, hoping that other people would give them food to eat, hoping that other people would put clothes on their back. I mean, this shirt is great. I don't know if it'll last for three years if I wore it every day. You know? And here's what's crazy. They changed the world. They changed the world. Jesus was just a poor 30-something ex-carpenter uh, guy that was running the Jewish countryside amok. But he changed history all together. He shouldn't be a dot on the eye in the longest history book but he changed history altogether. He shouldn't have been a, just the, the smallest, faintest blip on the radar of history, but he changed it altogether as a poor Jewish man. You, you might say, well, yeah, he was God, but, but you know what the disciples did? They saw Jesus acting out of his poverty, and you know what they did? It? They, 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 did? they imitated it. These were poor fishermen. They weren't anything. They didn't have huge wealth or trust funds to lead on, come from wealthy families, they were poor. And they began a movement through their personal sacrifice that changed the face of the earth altogether. All right? You see, this is the invitation of Christianity. 
This is what it is. It, are, are you going to sacrifice so that the kingdom could yield huge potential? That's the question that Christians are left with. That's why if you're not a Christian, like, talking about money, it, it gets right down to it. Christianity is about personal sacrifice because we see the kingdom of God as being the most beautiful thing ever to attain and we'll give up anything to follow it. All right? And, and, and this is what I'll also say tonight. Christianity doesn't halt when wealth runs dry because that's not the currency of the kingdom. Christianity halts when personal sacrifice runs dry. That's actually what happens, what, what happens when you see churches die. Personal sacrifice has run dry, not the wealth. And so this understanding of the potential of the kingdom of God, of these kingdom economics, leads to two things. First, it encourages those of us in poorer circumstances. Maybe you're a student. Maybe you've recently uh, been uh, demoted in your job or you're not making as much money as you used to. Maybe you've lost your job altogether. <clears throat> or for, there's a host of reasons that, that could put you between a rock and a hard place financially. But what the widow's might tells us is that your gift, no matter if it's just two pennies, is important and it's needed in the kingdom of God for it to go forward, that, that any amount of personal sacrifice that you can give is crucial to the kingdom of God moving forward in the world. So that's the first thing it says. And then to those of us who, who might be richer Christians or, or on, on the more wealthy side of things, it, it challenges us. It, it, it doesn't let us slip into um, really just seeing our gift with, with maybe a couple, two, three, heck, four zeros on the end of it as, as being enough just because it has those zeros there. It challenges us to think not through dollar amount, but through level of personal sacrifice. And, and we're, we're talking through the lens of money because that's what this, this, uh, this story here, is, this account is about here, but this is really about everything in our lives, right? It's, money is just one of the areas that the Christian is called to, to sacrifice in this life, all right? Um, there's a, a special deception of the wealth that I, I've seen personally, I just want to throw out there, I don't know, um, and it goes like this. I've seen some of my friends in college convinced that they, um, that it was their calling in life to make as much money as possible so that they could give a lot of money to the church. I mean, it, it, it sounds like the greatest thing ever, right? Oh yeah, go make some money, give it to the church, we can do a lot of stuff with it. But when I'm with this, it's one guy I'm thinking of, but when I spend time with him, it's so sad. He's miserable because he's, he's tied his, his ability to contribute to the kingdom to a dollar amount, not personal sacrifice. And honestly, when I'm with him, he's actually not sacrificing that much at the end of the day. He made the mistake of attaching the potential of the kingdom to a dollar amount instead of personal sacrifice. And so I just want anybody who might have this thinking out there just to hear this, that, that don't chase wealth for God. He doesn't want your wealth. He, he wants you. He, he wants your personal sacrifice. He wants to convince you that, that he's the most generous God there is in, in creating the world and giving you everything that you have. He wants to convince you of that and out of that, see you give back. That's what the gospel's all about, all right? So that, that's kingdom potential, all right? And, and, and it's huge because it, it, re, it, gets, it really readjusts how we naturally think about money. 
it does at the end of the day. That's kingdom potential, okay? Um, but they, and, and there's another gut reaction I want to talk about tonight, and it goes something like this. When we view the gift of the widow, we watch her put in these two pennies. We hear Jesus say, hey, that's all that she has to live on. And we kind of say, girl, what are you doing? Right? You're, you need that money to support yourself. Go to Dick's and get yourself a cheeseburger or something, right? How foolish of a gift for you to actually give everything that you have. You need to watch out for yourself. I think our, our gut reaction that some of us may have, and if, if we didn't, if it wasn't so quickly followed up with Jesus' praise of her actions is, how foolish, how foolish. But we have to ask the question, um, where does the wisdom of uh, how to deal with our finances actually come from? Where does it come from? Because every day we are all bombarded with so many messages about you need to spend your money this way, you need to spend your money on this. Part of it is just like someone's trying to attract you to spend your money so that they can have it, right? But some of it gets couched in terms of wisdom. A lot of it does. For example, um, what, does, what, what is every realtor's mission statement, or I guess vision statement, you could say, what's every realtor's vision statement to those of us who are renting? Anybody know it? Just shout it out. Stop paying your landlord's rent. It's a really wise thing. It's really wise. It's a wise statement, right? Maybe. 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 It, it, it could be. That's something that we have to evaluate. And I mean, I think for me right now, this housing market with my family, I, I don't know if it's a wise thing to do. Maybe not ever for us. I don't know. I'm still debating that. I don't know. But it, it's a very personal question, right? But it gets kind of couched in this and, and uh, talked about in this really wise way. And realtors are only saying it because at the end of the day, they close the deal with you, they get 25 grand, maybe more, <laughs> you know? So we have to realize that, that, that the wisdom of our day when it comes to money is constantly bombarding us, trying to tell us how to wisely spend our money. But Jesus, through this story, we see a different wisdom ethic unearthed here. We see a different wisdom ethic on earth here when he says why this woman's gift was bigger. He says that in verse 44, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. And that wisdom ethic is this. Jesus is celebrating her creating a deficit in her life. Jesus is celebrating the fact that she gave to the point where she had to depend on God to provide for her. Jesus is celebrating that right now. And, and, and I would probably, I would suggest that this probably isn't her first time doing this. This is the first time, this is the only time we have it recorded here in scripture, but I would, I would venture a guess that, that she had given like this often. And she had learned to give sacrificially. And I would dare say that when she learned this dependent faith, her sacrificial giving plus this dependent faith that she gave with turned into foolish giving. I think she was a foolish giver. I, I really do. And I think that that's something that Jesus is celebrating. Jesus is celebrating how she's giving foolishly compared to the world here. Because sacrificial giving plus dependent faith equals foolish giving that moves the kingdom forward. And this is where Jesus will jack us up. This is where he jack, I mean, I've been preparing this sermon for the past week, or week and a half, and this is where he's jacked me up. 
just when we think that we get to the point where we're giving sacrificially, that we're, we've put on the lenses of personal sacrifice and we're leaning into it, Jesus gives us this example and says, yeah, but did you give to create a deficit in your life where I had to show up? Jesus, that's crazy. That's crazy. Because I, uh, I think most of us, I mean, most of us are used to giving out of our surplus or out of our abundance is how Jesus puts it here. But Jesus is saying, are you giving to create a, decif- uh, a, a deficit? And he celebrated this woman that was. Um, there's a, a couple in, in my community group back in Denver. Um, they, were, they, were, they were great. Uh, they, they moved out to Denver uh, as newlyweds, uh, just like you two up here. hey um, They moved out to Denver as, as, as newlyweds, okay? And they did what everybody, all newlyweds do when they do to Denver, or when they move to Denver. They want to have fun. Denver has 300 days of sunshine a year, um, and it has the mountains, and people just recreate in Denver like crazy, like crazy. That's what they do. That's like people move there. Uh, my parents did it in the 80s, right after they got married, and they, ne- they never went back. Um, but something happened a couple months into them moving to Denver, and uh, it's that they got pregnant. I guess they're having a little too much fun uh, in Denver. <laughs> they were really loving Denver. Um, but they got pregnant, and all of a sudden, they felt the weight of finding um, jobs so they could support this new life that was coming into the world, right? And he was a freelance graphic designer, and, and uh, he could kind of find gigs here and there, but it wasn't steady by any means. And um, She uh, just tried to find whatever um, ad- administrative assistant job she could, um, and she ended up finding one at an oil company, and about three years ago, oil kind of tanked, and a lot of that market shrunk up in Denver, so she didn't have a job, and she couldn't really work at her oil job that much anyways because she was so sick throughout her entire pregnancy. Um, but at, right after they had this little girl, adorable little girl, beautiful little girl, um, they came to our group and they said, hey, we're really struggling to make ends meet right now. It's really hard for us. And, and I got to see our group respond and, and, and all, everyone would gave them money, they gave them groceries, they tried to find other avenues where they could find a regular income, a regular paycheck. It was absolutely beautiful to see the kingdom of God work like that. Um, but I worked for the church, and I don't think these, this couple knew, but, but I knew how much they gave. And I was stunned. I was absolutely floored. Because this couple was they were, they, were, they were giving a significant regular amount to the church. And they were obviously giving to create a deficit. And I was just humbled. I was just humbled at it. And, and, and because they did that, they gave the rest of our group the opportunity to extend the wealth that God had given them the, for God's kingdom to work through them in generosity as well. It was the most beautiful thing I, I'd seen in our group it was, it was wonderful, I guess, other than the people coming to Jesus, you know, and becoming Christians. But, but still, it was really, really beautiful. And here's the thing. They, they wouldn't look back on the gifts that they'd given and regret it. They, they, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. I'm sure that they're still foolish givers to this day. I really am. And they just had a, a, one more little baby, and they're doing great. They're, they're probably still foolish givers. They're probably still happy in the gospel. At least they were when we left Denver this summer. Um, they gave to create 
a deficit in their life. And, and this is the one area in the whole of Scripture, the whole of Scripture, this is the one area where God invites people to test him, to test him, not on anything else. But he says this in Malachi chapter three. He says, bring me in the full tithe. That's 10% of, your, of, of, of what you make um, in Israel's time. Bring in to me the full tithe, 10%. Test me at this and see if I don't provide for you. See if I don't provide for you. Bring in the full tithe, which to them what felt like creating a deficit because we're gonna have to depend on God now. Bring in the full tithe. And I haven't heard anybody who has given to the church and given to in personal sacrifice regret it. I, I, I mean, I grew up in the church. Um, I've been in the church for a long time. I've been a pastor at a church for, I guess, five years now. I haven't heard that story yet. I haven't heard that story. Maybe you have that story. Come up and share it with me, please do, so I can get my perspective rounded out here. But I haven't heard that story yet. And that's because foolish giving brings about the kingdom of God in miraculous and powerful ways. And people see that happen. And Jesus models this for us. Jesus models this for us perfectly. Um, Jesus, in Mark chapter 8, he shares his decision with the disciples. Hey guys, we're going to go to Jerusalem um, so that I can die. And Peter decides to share some wisdom of the age with Jesus and says, hey, you're not going to do that. That's crazy, Jesus. Jesus looks at him. He calls him Satan and tells him to shut up. That's what he does. And, and that, that's, that's a good line, by the way. I mean, if someone ever looks at your foolish giving and is like, you're foolish, you can call him Satan, tell him to shut up, okay? Um, but so Jesus foolishly goes to Jerusalem in this final week and this is what his final week looked, looked like. Um, day one, he goes to the marketplace. And he realizes, uh, he sees that the, the, the vendors have realized that they have a captive audience. They have a captive audience that have to buy animals to sacrifice at the temple. And so what do you do with captive audiences that have to buy your stuff? You make it really, really expensive. And Jesus overturned their tables. He fashioned a whip Jesus was whipping people. Do you, do you ever think of that? Jesus like running through a marketplace whipping people. He, he overturned tables, fashioned a whip, was whipping people, and he pissed off the economic center of the city. I mean, I, if he would go to a Seattle Seahawks game, he'd push over the beer man, okay? That's what he'd do for charging such a, an exorbitant amount of money on a captive audience, right? And then what he did at the temple was he actually went into the temple he called the religious leaders of the day um, names. Uh, you, you can look at the gospel accounts. He calls them names. He accuses them of stealing from the poor. He debates them intent, in, very, very intensely throughout the entire week. So he, he's already foolishly kind of angered the economic center of the city. Now he's foolishly angered the religious leaders of the city. He's not done yet. Then he takes the temple. He looks at the temple and he says this, not one stone on this temple is gonna stand on top of the other. This is where he foolishly turns all of the people in the city against him because the temple was the center of the Jewish theocracy and they thought he was coming in to set that up and get the ball rolling on that. But he says, no, that's gonna be destroyed. I mean, Jesus doesn't have to. That's not actually tied to the gospel in any significant way. 
but he wants to foolishly sacrifice his life. And so he has to get them angry too. And the very crowds that bow down to him and are shouting, the Messiah is here, Hosanna, Hosanna, the salvation has come to Israel. By the end of the week, they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify the same crowds. It's not like we had a, a swap of crowds. There's no crowd swap. Jesus just foolishly turned the entire city against him. And he foolishly went to the cross. He was put before Pilate for some sort of trial. I say some sort of because it's not really a trial. This is a joke in terms of the way that we have ordered trial. And all of the, the, the religious leaders of the day were putting all these false accusations on Jesus. And you know what he does? He foolishly says nothing. Nothing. And it's this foolish sacrifice on the cross, small sacrifice, just a poor Israelite man that actually brings life to the whole world. That the kingdom of God could now be unleashed on the world. This sacrifice on the cross could now eliminate the power of sin in Christians' Christians' lives. Do you realize that that's like a fundamental way that Christians are different than non-Christians? The, 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 the cross has taken the power of sin out of your life in a significant way that you actually uh, have a relationship with, with sin that is fundamentally different because of Jesus' foolish sacrifice on the cross. That's power. That's power. And so people, through that foolish sacrifice, could come to know God and have a relationship with him once again. He's not sanctioned off in a temple where people can't be with him, but he's in temple of the believers of the church itself. God is there. It's a foolish sacrifice, a sacrifice that goes far into the deficit for Jesus that unleashes that for all Christians everywhere. Let's pray. Father, we we praise you for the the foolish sacrifice of your son uh, that was rooted in and in, in, in who you are fundamentally, God. You are a generous God that gives of yourself. And we see that even throughout the entire Old Testament, even before you send your son and, and he shows up on the scene to give him his entire self as well. We see you creating an earth, Lord, full of potential and then giving it over to humanity. Your perfect creation to humanity. And so, God, we just look to the, the generosity of Christ and we just ask, how, how can we respond to this? How might we respond to the radical generosity of Christ that has fundamentally changed how sin works in the world and in our lives, God? That powerful sacrifice of Christ. I just pray for my friends right now and I, I just pray that, that you would help them process this question, Lord. I just pray that, that anything that I said that, that wasn't rooted firmly in your gospel and who you are would just disappear and go away right now and I pray that, um, that you, you would just help all of us uh, really process this question now of how to respond to you and generosity, whether that be with money or the, the many other things in life that you have given us, Lord. Um, we just love you and we praise you. Amen.